0: My guest today is Rob Prugay, Principal Consultant at Calydom Investment Research. Many of you probably know Rob from his thirty years of background in uh, superannuation and asset um, management in Australia. Rob, welcome. Hi, Alex. Well, I thought today, you know, what a great place to to kick off the conversation, where we have again more irrational exuberance in the markets. You know, we've we've done some research in Investment Magazine around Robinhood traders and day traders getting all excited and pushing the markets back and forth. Sort of wanted to get your perspective on, on what you're seeing today and maybe in the, in the history of what you've seen more um, globally in terms of these sorts of uh, exuberance that we see.
1: Sure. I, I guess there's really two angles that I would address it at. The first is the, uh, I guess, the personal uh, self-belief. And the second is more of an agency issue. With regards to the, the first, um, I remember when the book, Schiller's book, uh, Irrational Exuberance came out, and it caused me to reflect um, over my career, I guess, and I remember how ego coupled with maybe how that ego was consumed um, blinded people to this sort of self-level of comfort uh, or false comfort. And sometimes that was expressed by their consumption and other times by the way they actually built portfolios. I remember the 1987 crash and uh, preceding the 1987 crash, how uh, people were spending money stupidly. Uh, and some of these portfolios, again, looked rather odd. Then, of course, I remember the Asian financial crisis. Uh, where I was a young analyst and uh, I was in Singapore and talking to some of these Asian PMs and what they were doing and how they were constructing portfolio. And again, this sort of self-belief that there's someone else behind them uh, who will continue to push the price up. Then, of course, uh, the dot-com, whereby even the uh, greats of Warren Buffett uh, were tainted as brick investors, Uh, And when I say brick, I'm not referring to the emerging market, but uh, old school, brick and mortar, uh, and how they were lagging behind, and again, the consequences therein. And more recently is, I guess, a uh, QE-induced don't bet against the Fed mentality, um, whereby it seems to show that any correction tends to be short-lived. So in previous corrections, uh, early on, any correction would have been L-shaped, a very rapid decline, followed by very slow resurgence. More recently, as was seen during uh, the first Trump uh, when he won the election, uh, coupled later, of course, with uh, the Brexit, you saw a rapid correction. But once the dust settled, and the abundance of QE money floating. Again, the don't bet against the Fed uh, mentality took over and the correction was just as steep. And you see a bit of that now, whereby the market had retraced much of its early falls post-COVID, only recently, of course, coming down uh, a second wave following the fears of a second wave of COVID infections. So this don't bet against the uh, Fed My concern is that it's causing sensible people to embrace unsensible risk. Um, And again, history has shown them right, but eventually something's got to give. And I have no clue what that is or when that's going to be, but I'm rather confident that eventually the dust will settle and no amount of uh, QE will be able to sustain some of the irrational um, behaviors, be it professional in construction of fund or an irrational uh, belief that you don't bet against the Fed. And at the end of the day, the Fed will always bail you out. Um, That's a rather dangerous one. And we've seen this before, whether it's the Fed or the RBA through monetary policy or the government through bailouts, But somehow we've appeared to have morphed into a new environment whereby profits are privatized, but losses are socialized. And so even if the Fed doesn't bail you out per se, the government will. And the dilemma here with regards to superannuation is that one would assume that defined contribution funds, as of course we embrace, the concept of caveat emptor, buyer beware, is supposed to hold. So even though it's nationalized savings to offset future tax burdens, and we incentivize those savings uh, through tax management, would any government allow a large superannuation to go belly up? I sincerely doubt that. Um, I can't really think of one Western nation, democratic nation that would allow 300 to 400,000 people go broke and see their superannuation wither into nothing. So if this irrational behavior of the the Fed always bails you out and the government always bails you out, does that actually conflict? with this concept of caveat mTOR embedded within defined contribution. Have we really been managing in the last 5-10 years, have we really been managing a wealth management business as opposed to a um, retirement business? If it's a retirement business, then our goals should be CPI plus. but the reality is the goals for many CIOs and incentivization of many CIOs is ranking. Um, there's a disconnect here. So heads I win, tails you lose is a rather hard thing to overcome in this world of, dare I say, rational exuberance. And the, so at the beginning, I said the construction of a portfolio followed by the agency of the portfolio again this sort of where do i rank and the agency uh component is a financial incentive and you know as tom peters once said that which gets measured gets managed and whether it's the heat maps whether it's the league tables or the ratings we tend to uh favor those funds who have done well over a one or three-year uh, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tend to reward them. We reward them with positive ratings, and when the positive ratings comes, what ha- what do you think happens to their compensation of the investment team? It goes up. So are we – the agency question in this irrational exuberance is, are we um, – Shooting at the wrong goalposts. Look, at and so it's yeah, interesting. It, it, it really is a very broad. So your question is a really broad one, but you, in my opinion, you need to break it down into construction phase and agency phase. So because uh, both are very strong influence.
0: L- let's let's do that, right? So let's just go back to to a couple of things you mentioned there, which is sort of this burning of markets, the central banks supposedly have in your back, you know, the the idea that Warren Buffett, some laggard, has got no idea what's happening in markets. Um, we've actually seen that again, you know, with with these Robin Hood traders. We've had this new guy, David uh Portnoy, this internet celebrity of barstool sports, who's this new head guy of, of Robin Hood trading. And, you know, he's made comments like, if you, it ain't bragging if you ain't backing it up. And and it's just got, to, well, for me, it looks like it's got to the extreme again of, of the 2000 dot uh, um, com boom days where, you know, he's also criticized Buffett. And you know, Buffett sold out all of his airport stocks or airline stocks and and this guy's now gone in and, and gone crazy. So you've got this backdrop where it feels like you just can't lose. So if I take that small anecdote and sort of, you know, amplify that to some of the superannuation funds, are they also now in sort of you know, almost damned if they do, damned if they don't, need to go down this path and just keep investing for growth because they need to keep hitting performance targets. They need to, you know, keep up with their competitors in terms of these league tables. And maybe they don't believe in markets continually going up, but they've got no other option.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, um, again, going back to what I said on the agency issue is – and how people are compensated. Uh, I don't doubt the integrity, what one inch of the investment people, whether inside the superannuation or the manufacturing. Um, I know that they understand the semantics and they clearly understand that however you value it, things look expensive. The challenge though. Is not that things look expensive. The challenge is, where the hell do you invest it? Mm-hmm. If you presuppose that um, all assets fall back on a cost of capital as their pricing mechanism, as at the foundation of the pricing mechanism, and when the cost of capital is negative in real terms and next to negative in nominal terms, then... Where are you going to invest? Bonds? And so what you're finding now is you're finding increasingly um, the marketing of unique ideas. And some of these unique ideas are packaged by external fund managers, and some of them are created internally uh, by some investment teams within superannuation. But the question still goes back to the goal of superannuation, CPI plus, are the investors embracing an unrealistic level of risk in order to, one, uh, separate themselves from the pack with the hope of trying to have one of those be a real winner? Um, private equity, you know, when I started in the industry uh, in the late 80s, you could, it was difficult to find any financial literature um, that was supporting and positive on private equity. I remember some of the studies that I read uh, showing the track record over the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and it was really sporadic. You know, you had one good year out of five or something like that. So meaning f- out, of the, out of the five-year holding period, only one year of it, you really made any money. The other years, you were losing money. And so when you extended it, the rate of return wasn't that great. Now, of course, that doesn't seem to be happening. And because it's not uh, liquid and it's not visibly priced, it's given people some false sense of assurance. and on top of that how some superannuation funds excuse me are remunerating their CIOs based on the overall volatility of the fund you know it, our funds embracing an unrealistic level of risk in order to achieve a different objective mm-hmm. not the objective immunization of CPI+, Plus, but, again, to what you said, is there's enough sources out there to bail them out, coupled with the fact that if they get it right, their compensation is going to be very handsome.
0: And if they get it wrong, and, it doesn't and seem to matter.
1: It, well, if you get it wrong, well, okay, you're out of a job, but you know, at least the, the RBA or the Australian government will bail out the super fund. You know, when the previous liquidity issues that we had some years back Uh, What saved that fund was other funds coming together and buying these illiquid assets. Uh, That worked when funds were relatively small. There was no major behemoth. But now with um, the regulators and the government enticing and pushing towards fewer number to be bigger. The consequences of one of these funds getting it wrong in a defined contribution caveat mTOR is huge. Hmm. And so I've been very vocal in as much saying, fine, you want to be bigger, that's great, but why? If you can't answer why you want to be bigger outside of agency-driven reasons, why as a member do I want to be large?
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting you say that about sort of why do you want to be large? I had an interview just recently with Graham Russell, the outgoing CEO of Media Super. And, you know, he made some very strong comments around sort of the the benefits of being small, the benefits of being nimble, the benefits of being small enough to understand your members and actually also invest in in your your, uh, industry group you know, that, you're, that you represent. You know, what are your thoughts on sort of some of these smaller funds operating? And, and you know, the, the other claim, I guess, with the, the size is that they don't seem to have the benefits of scale. But but does it really matter? Do you need to have these benefits of scale?
1: Well, uh, if you look at some of the large sovereign wealth funds, and I'm not talking future fund, I'm talking larger funds than that, in Europe and let alone Asia, um, they would... Uh, flag the diseconomies of scale, meaning that they're so large that there could be an arbitrage opportunity in microcap, but they can't participate because they're just too large. Um, Firstly, the, um, the larger you are, the more difficult it becomes to arbitrage the inefficiency of a strategy. Um, Also, coupled with the fact of the Huey and the large flows of money, um, the beta arbitrage or the market arbitrage is pretty much non-existent. It's it's going with the flow, the inefficiencies. So you have to find sub-sectors and sub-markets within a broader market to find where the efficiencies may lie, could be uh, bank loans versus corporate debt, as an example. Uh, or it could be a certain real estate tranche versus all overall commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this economy's a scale is is again the challenge. Now, I would recommend all super um, everyone working in superannuation, particularly industry funds, to reread your reports, your annual reports and the documents you send and show me where it says we are pursuing economies of scale to make more alpha. It's not going to be in there. More often than not, this issue of economies of scale, I think, has surpassed this issue of trying to find something cheaper, to differentiating ourselves and being the big behemoth that people naturally want to come to us. Now, anyone who has done CFA level one knows of Michael Porter. And uh, Porter analysis basically says, if you're going to run a strategy, there's only really two strategies to run. Strategy number one is to be the biggest, where you do get economies of scale. Um, And you can survive, but you have to be the biggest. Strategy number two, is you have to differentiate. You have to be unique. Your offering has to be unique. If you're a medium-sized manager or super fund and you're not employing one of these two, you're going to lose. The market will overwhelm you. Um, So if we look at super innovation, there's a lot of medium-sized funds who are ambition, whose ambition is to be in the top five. The question I would say is, okay, what is it going to cost you? What um, new risks will you be embracing that you currently don't embrace? And are you able to manage those risks? It's these questions or the lack thereof uh, is what concerns me. This sort of Uh, Drinking the Kool-Aid and presupposing that bigger is better no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're pursuing bigger and better, you better do it for a cause and be able to show that that cause is going to benefit the members. Because in essence, your members are subsidizing your marketing and they're subsidizing uh, through some of the investments that they ontake. Uh, as these funds grow and they on take other DB plans and DC funds, they're, they're taking the uh, valuations as in the ledgers of these other uh, funds, which haven't necessarily been stress tested. And so the members are subsidizing a, uh, the management's ambition to be large. So there, too, I think there's a level of governance to oversee this required. How is it doing? What's the, the members? Um, what are they funding? Are they aware of that funding? And the best example I can give you was when I was at New South Wales State Super, and the then treasurer, Michael Egan, decided to sell State Super to later to Morgan Grenfell and, beco- of course, later becoming Deutsche. Um, what they did, the government did, is they, had, they hired an investment bank, but they also hired Mercer's. And Mercer's objective was purely to make sure that the members weren't going to take on any unnecessary risk in order for the government to offload this investment. And I think the same thing could be said here uh, within superannuation. You want to internalize? Fine. Who's representing the member? Now the clear answer, of course, is the board. But all too often, the board, um, with a great amount of respect, either doesn't have the gravitas to challenge management on some of these uh, risks that they undertake, or two, they embrace the theory and they're letting their colleagues getting on with it. Um, that is how disasters happen. Not out of some sort of corruption, not out of some sort of um, um, malfeasance, but rather uh, a false sense of security that we're doing the right thing because you haven't challenged that view.
0: Mm-hmm. Let, let, let's yeah. maybe take it from from that sort of view that, that you've just described. You know, if you were thinking about you know a, a smaller fund, maybe in the five billion dollar mark, even up to sort of the twenty thirty billion, if you were sort of sitting in a fund and you're a, a CIO of one of these funds, you know, how would you prepare the portfolio and then the various systems and governance that you want around you that's constantly challenging your thinking to make sure that you're actually taking into consideration these these risks that you've just described.
1: Well, many of these uh, smaller funds um, have an advantage that the bigger funds no longer have. uh, And that is better engagement. Um, Why? That's not to say that obviously the big uh, super funds don't have engagement with their members, but the level of engagement is next to impossible to replicate a fund with let's say 20,000 members or uh, 100,000 members to one of 500 or 800,000 members. So as they grow old, uh, as they grow larger as they uh, are accepting more and more members the in order to retain that level of engagement the staff personnel required would be prohibitive. And so you know, this is what I was saying, you know, with the heat maps, there's nothing in the heat map, which is consistent with the actually derived portfolio immunization. It's only uh, risk and return. It's not a, well, how does that fit into nonetheless, into the level of risk that was undertaken to grab that return? And how did that return contribute overall to the fund's long-term objective? We don't have that. And so smaller funds, because of the argument I said before of diseconomy, at a certain point, diseconomy economy kicks in, have that advantage. But where the true advantage, I would argue, that many smaller funds have, that perhaps they're not um, extracting well enough because they, too, are worried about being swallowed up by the quote unquote big boys. Um, They're losing, you know, they have something that the large funds will never have. And that is, of course, a better engagement. And then they're saying to me, yeah, but, you know, the government's kind of pushing me to to merge. And it says, well, they can't force you to merge. Deliver what you're going to deliver. And you know what? Confront them. (laughs) Say, I think you're wrong. Show me in my IMA, any page in my IMA that I'm not fulfilling. And then let's talk about it. But to push me to be larger for no other reason than to be larger, because some sort of uh, um, belief that bigger is better, I would argue you are the one who is at fault here of of the future disaster, not me. I'm curious. And And I don't think there's enough of that challenge.
0: It's interesting when you say that sort of this challenge because I actually sort of think about it that the problem is also um, an equation problem to solve because the whole premise with these league tables is really for funds to, to you know, solve for a maximum return, you know, without really much control around risk. Let's, let's be honest there. So in one yeah, case, sure. you're trying to solve for this return, a max return with risk sort of seen to be sort of agnostic versus a CPI plus target, which is what you say it should be, right? And what a lot of them are also putting in their, in their PDS documents and so forth, right? Shouldn't they yep. be solving for a, a CPI plus three or CPI plus four and they solve it for the best um, you know, uh, return or they hit that return with the lowest amount of risk? Isn't that really what investors are looking for? Hitting a particular CPI plus target, it's consistent through time. And they minimize risk. It, it, it seems like we've got the equation, what we're trying to solve for, completely incorrect.
1: I, I think so. Um, but then again, um, you know, maybe you and I are, are singing from our own hymn book, uh, and I accept that. But I, I constantly challenge that myself and say, what am I missing? Because this is going on for a long time. And it hasn't really, um, I guess, been challenged enough that people are, are coming around. Um, and the only answer I can give is, is it's funny how there's no league table for DB funds.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: It's funny how there's no league table for variable annuities funds. But there is a league table for DC. Why? Is, is a DB and a DC, as Keith Ambekshire used to say, the only thing that separates a DB and a DC is where it sits on the line who on who owns the liability they're both pension funds so why is it that these league tables and these agency issues are more prominent in these in in our system than in other countries that has more db or payg or variable annuity And uh, that is my other beef. My other beef is, as I said before, on caveat emptor, uh, it's almost like these uh, league tables and heat maps are encouraging encouraging and promoting this irrational exuberance and irrational behavior, forcing funds to embrace levels of risk that no DB fund or variable annuity would ever do. And if that's true, then do us all a favor: get rid of the tax incentive. Don't let the taxpayers subsidize the saving schemes, so we can create a wealth management business.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one because there, you know there is a lot of support. It's not even the tax incentive, but there's also the, the superannuation guarantee that money keeps coming yeah. in. And it keeps pumping this this sort of game, if you want to call it something like that, because that's what it feels like today. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the, the, whole, well, the whole... Oh, whole I go?
1: Well, again, if we go back to when superannuation was introduced and how it was 50% coming out of the member, uh, the employee and 50% of the employer, it doesn't really matter. That's the member's money. I mean, if you recall why uh, Keating introduced it, uh, we, we obviously to offset the future tax liabilities, but he did it in a way that it was born. The cost was borne by both employee and employer, but the total cost of employment was still the same. Mm-hmm. So it, at the end of the day, that means that the member is, you know, it's ultimately the members money um, that's going in and forcing them to save it. And it's, it, again, it's going into this wealth management outcome because of the way we're rating and uh, rewarding funds f- who are successful, because the goalpost that, which we're aiming for is the wrong one. It's a wealth management, which is totally fine. The, the wealth management business, as we all know, is large enough as it is. But you know the big difference is wealth management doesn't have tax incentives and tax subsidies as superannuation does
0: you could also say that some of the wealth management business has a has a much more ruthless um you know governance structure that sits beside you know alongside it in terms of if you you don't perform and and your products aren't delivering then you can be cut quite quickly but you don't seem to see that in the superannuation space is that a fair assumption
1: no you're seeing it more and more in the superannuation as well i mean uh, ask any CIO that's lagging the league tables. Mm-hmm. It's funny, you know, when uh, um, Q Super and AMP uh, and others were uh, starting to build uh, target-based funds of CPI Plus, and and they extracted themselves from the league tables. Um, at the time they did it, everyone was nodding their head. Yes, this makes total sense. Yes, absolutely. Uh, And then a bull market came soon thereafter, and these funds were doing everything they meant to be doing. It's just that they weren't delivering 15% returns because, of course, that's not uh, a pension objective. And so they suffered. So, you know, there were um, people were pulling their money out. Even funds that aren't open to outside members um, face that. That same dilemma not because they need to be competitive in league tables to attract new members but to retain existing members and this is again you know um where the wealth management the, the wealth management marketing um verbiage comes into play the best example of the marketing verbiage that i see in super innovation is is more often than not the ads are of people surfing while retired you know and or in their yachts and they're financially well off and that's not true uh we're not saving enough the average australian will never have saved enough to live that kind of idyllic life where they have a yacht and they're traveling to europe twice a year and uh it's like i said google um google Um, retire rich and then look at the images of all the magazines and all that and you'll see that. You'll see this sort of retire rich uh, of of the person being under 65 clearly being wealthy because they're on their yacht or they're in a pool in some exotic resort um, which of course is just this sort of marketing agency driven issue because if we look at what pension is it, we don't see the same thing with variable annuity funds or DB plans. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, they're not trying to sell the lifestyle. See, that's, that's, I think the difference. The other one sort of is it is a set amount of money here that that's going to be paid to you. The DC plans are there to sort of sell this almost get rich quick style, you know, mentality where you can, you can have a big, you know, pool of money at the end that you know, becomes this retirement. And, pot.
1: Need, and it, it, sorry. So keep that thought Mm-hmm. About, again, the selling the lifestyle and selling it. And, again, we're breaking away from that CPI plus three objective. We're breaking away from the annuity stream that pensions is meant to give away. We're breaking away from the dull nature of what pensions really are. Mm-hmm. And we're glorifying it into some sort of Gordon Gecko wannabe whereby if something goes wrong, it's all right. I get, I'll get bailed out. Someone's going to bail me out, or the Fed's going to come in and pump more money into the market, and it'll And the the recovery will be quick and V-shaped.
0: It's a it's a stupid challenge when you've got this situation because if if you in the back of your mind always believe that the central bank will be there to have your back, interest rates never go up, right? And you've got nobody across your board. You know your investment committee that is really willing to speak out, or if they do, maybe they're just that lone voice. Yeah, you know, what do you do?
1: Well, you touched on the board, and and I guess that another thing I would sort of discuss on that is is the diversity of the board. Um, more often than not, people reflect diversity of boards by gender. Um, I'm not sure it is just gender, gender. Diversity, in my definition, is diversity of thought. And diversity of thought comes not just in grabbing people from different uh, backgrounds, so someone can talk legal and someone can talk investments and someone can talk, but also um, diversity of thought. Someone who didn't go to Sydney Uni or Melbourne Uni, but actually maybe went to um, IIT in, in India. Uh, or uh, Harvard, or uh, whatever, another really good university in another country. Um, Your the, the diversity of thought comes in different shades, in different genders, and in different financial brackets.
0: Can we and ex- can f- we extend that to actually people in different countries potentially? Because if you think about superannuation and particularly that it's investing more and more internationally, um, you know, should there be now more and more more of a requirement for some of these people to actually sit outside the country?
1: Well, I've researched many companies, big companies, where they have um, uh, diversity by countries. And I'm not sure the logistics of that, given that, of course, we are an uh, uh, Antipodean island, that that we can truly get that because, again, uh, most proper board meetings will be all day and the cost of flying the person, if you can get them out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I I don't know. I I think one thing that Australia is very good at is that they have a very, uh, uh, relative to many other first world nations, we have a very strong international um, openness. Uh, We are much more internationally aware than the, I would argue, than the average North American or even European. I know that's a big statement, but I think that is because we are in the far reach of the world, so we have to be. I think that's one of the reasons why Australia is one of the um, early adapters to new ideas. I remember when I started at AMP back in the late 80s. You know, we used to get the uh, shops like uh, Solomon Brothers, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. Fisher Black, I mean, some really amazing people coming out. And they were, always used to say to us, maybe they were just uh, pissing in our pocket, but they always used to say to us, yeah, we're, we're blown away how well-informed the Australian market is uh, because we don't get that same um, diversity of information in many of our own North American clients. Um, so I, I, to answer your point, I think the diversity uh, question it, the main point of that is that it's not just a gender-related question. It's a diversity of thought. And it is possible to have the same thought um, by different genders, mm-hmm. by different races. And so if, if the goal is to diversify the boards, then the question should be how are, are these people diversifying? And hiring them, everyone from the same golf club is not diversification. And you and I both know as well, some funds basically are hiring other board members of other funds. That's not diversity. Mm-hmm. Let, let's take it
0: back for you. Know, for final question, but take it back sort of where, where we sort of started in terms of this irrational exuberance that's going on and, and sort of rethink that, you know, with this COVID crisis, we are starting to see some evidence of a secular change. But, I haven't seen much, you know in terms of a difference in the way that funds and fiduciaries are thinking new strategies to to perform, you know in this new environment. you know how how do you get them to change um, and and what needs to maybe happen for people to actually realize that that there is um, a change coming?
1: Well, it's interesting. I, I I over the last few weeks and speaking to many friends in the industry, they've all say the same thing. They said, my God, I've never worked this hard uh, before COVID. And so I have like 60 hours of Zoom meetings and what have you. And um, I think everyone is trying to um, focus their attention on where COVIDnomics, lack of a better word, will push us towards, what will be the consequence of it. And so therefore they're preparing themselves um, For a more volatile world, or they're preparing themselves for a regionalization, for uh, a move from globalization to regionalization, all all these theories that are going about. What I've sort of taken a step back is, are we, are you getting false comfort from trying to read your tea leaves? Because no one knows where we're going to end up. So if that's true then would our time not be better spent by focusing, are we ready to adapt to a changed environment? Or are we still embracing some of the old outdated tools and systems that will make our adapting to a new environment that much harder? Um, And let me give you one example. Uh, There's dozens I can give you, but let me just give you one. Where uh, A medium-sized super fund, they have a CIO, and the CIO has a few people around them to work with them, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this super fund is divided between a board and investment committee. Again, if you look at the organizational structure of this super fund, uh, it'll be hard-pressed to differentiate it from any other super fund, with the possible exception that they don't internalize. But everything else pretty much looks the same. So when I was talking to the chair of the IC, you know, I said, well, don't you guys meet four times a year? Yes, he responds. Uh, And is it not true that uh, during these uh, four yearly meetings, that's when you decide and make and implement the recommendations by the CIO? And they say, yes. Well, there you go. You're going to find it harder to adapt. Uh, And he goes, all right, what do you mean by that? He says, well, look at the board at GM. Do you really think that they get involved in deciding how many blue cars or how many four-door cars to make? Of course they don't. What they do, however, is they set a framework, guidelines. This is where we want to be in five years' time. This is, we want the cars to be more efficient, 20% more efficient. We want to have all electric cars in in 20 years' time. Uh, Now, within these parameters, we want you to get there. And so what I was saying to this fund is, uh, as I said earlier, the L-shaped recovery is long gone because of the, again, don't bet against the Fed, the QE55, whatever number we're at right now. Uh, has meant that the recoveries are more V-shaped than L-shaped. And so by the time you decide to do something, uh, sorry, this you want to execute something that's been researched two months ago, you're too late. Hmm. The market has already repriced it. And so wouldn't you be better off, given that you've spent members' money on bringing the CIO to give guidelines to the CIO... And then say, this is what we want you to do. And the question you should be asking your CIO is, given the guidelines, is there any reason why you don't think you'll be able to reach your objective? Is there some impediment that will block you from adapting and moving within the guidelines? That, to me, is a more realistic question because at least I can – I'm better able to identify that's what's wrong within me than trying to pontificate where the market's going
0: to go. It makes makes a lot of sense, and it's it's also the reason why I think you see some CEOs have chosen to allocate money to to these multi asset style products because they recognize the the difficulty of being able to move um, and and the oh, structure yeah. that they have, and so this is a way that they can feel they can. Can uh, still get get access to you know good managers that can hopefully you know be be dynamic in in their approach to to markets and these fast moving um, situations that you just described.
1: But it, the other example I give of of this agency issue and how it fits in is um, right before the uh, dot com crash. Um, you may remember Boots PLC story. And Boots PLC, of course, the, the big pharmacy company from Europe, uh, UK, excuse me. And they had a large, granted, it was a DB plan, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, it had a very rigid and rigid, excuse me, uh, CPI plus three target. Um, anyway, I guess about three months before the correction, having uh, participated in a very strong bull market, the fund was uh, fully funded plus 10%, mm-hmm. 10% cushion. And so uh, a couple of months before the correction, the the CIO of Boots sold all the assets and moved it, a very large fund, mind you, and bought uh, inflation index guilt, which at the time were yielding CPI plus four. So he sold everything, sold out of property, sold out of liquid assets, whatever, and bought CPI plus. Uh, and he staggered it. So five years, 10 years, 30. And of course, in the UK, you can even go up to 100 years in some of these uh, gilts. And so he was able to basically immunize a portfolio and the surplus, no problem. The correction hit. And of course, he was getting call, you know, he was getting calls from everyone. How did you uh, know the market was going to correct? My God, you're a guru. And he says, stop, stop, stop. I'm not a guru. I was just managing to my objective. Yes, I thought the market was overvalued, but when the bond market was offering me CPI plus four, how daft would I be not to grab it? And again, this is the issue is, you know, whether it's agency driven by league tables, we're we're kicking the wrong goalposts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a fantastic analogy to really where we are today and, and sort of this constant drive for, for returns versus what what do we need and how much is enough um, and in this case you've given a clear example of someone managing to their target and realizing I don't need to take any additional risk I've, I've, I've hit my target and and I'm happy with that mm. all right that's been a fan- it, I, oh.
1: I, 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 used, I used to sell sorry I used to say all the time to uh, my friends in the industry how interesting it is that the way we manage our own personal portfolio differs from the way we manage the portfolio of others.
0: <laughs> that, that's always something that comes back to my, my mind and that comes back to the old premise of the skin in the game sort of pr- approach and, and what would you expect you know, if, if you gave money to someone else or if you manage your own money. That's been a fantastic yeah. conversation today. Thank you very much for your time, Rob.
1: My, my pleasure. Thank you, thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.